Welcome to Love What You Do, Do What You Love podcast. I'm Celeste Wong, AKA the girl in the cafe. I'm a cafe barista, actress, hospitality specialist turned coffee, travel, and lifestyle entrepreneur. Over the years, over the counter, I've been inspired by thousands of successful, passionate, and courageous people who love what they do and do what they love. In each episode, I'll bring you an inspiring person or message to help you create a life of independence and abundance, doing what you love and loving what you do. Let's get into it. I am super excited about my next guest today, film producer Mark Ordesky. We met a number of years ago at a cafe I was working at and also through some mutual friends. At the time, I had just finished acting in my first major feature film and since meeting him, I've always found his openness, energy and insight super interesting and uplifting. I couldn't miss this opportunity to share such a wealth of wisdom with you guys especially because I know we're all gunning to make a success of doing what we love. This episode is jam-packed with so much insight and practical advice you don't want to miss it. No matter what industry, product or service you're in, everything he talks about can be applied and substituted for your own situation or vocation. Whether you're in fashion, coffee, architecture, small business or creating a product, you'll definitely be inspired and motivated to perhaps look at another perspective. From his thoughts on how he dealt with people suggesting that he had peaked too soon after making the Lord of the Rings trilogy, (laughs) the lessons he learned from not only his huge successes, but more so his failures. You'll understand when you hear which Hollywood movies he failed to acquire. I loved this bit. His beliefs about purpose, mutually beneficial self-interests, and his perspective on what to do if money walked in the door right now. And so much more. This is episode 5 with Mark Ordesky. Mark Ordesky is a film and television producer and former Hollywood studio executive. He's probably best known for executive producing the Oscar-winning Lord of the Rings trilogy, during which Mark spent the better part of five years in New Zealand supporting his friend Peter Jackson's historic vision. He also met his Kiwi wife, Rachel O'Connell, there, and the two split their time between Los Angeles and Masterton, New Zealand, where they own a 10-acre lifestyle block, what Kiwis call a hobby farm. No, not a hobbit farm, a hobby farm. While growing up at indie studio New Line Cinema in the 90s and early noughts, Mark acquired or executive produced over 60 films, including the company's first Best Picture nominee for Shine, its first Palm d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, for Lars Van Trier's Dancer in the Dark, yep, that one with Bjork, Mark also helped introduce Jackie Chan to US audiences with the breakout hit Rumble in the Bronx, while simultaneously championing films from cinema icons such as Terrence Malick, David Mamet, John Waters, and Liliana Cavani. Now for a second act, he co-runs his own independent production company called Court 5, making film and TV content for traditional Hollywood studios and broadcasters, as well as global streamers like Netflix, Disney Plus, and Amazon. All this gives Mark a long view on the challenges and opportunities facing creators today. He jokingly refers to Hollywood as his Bruce Wayne life because As Batman, he has a side hustle documenting his preparedness lifestyle design at readyissexy.com, which was recently mentioned in the New York Times. 
you don't want to miss hearing this episode and all the gems he drops today. So grab your cuppa and let's go. Hi, Mark. Hi, good to see you. <laughs> Welcome. It's really great to see you and I'm so excited to have you here. I was going to ask you what you've been up to lately in terms of like your work and what you're working on. Mm. So do you want to start with that? Yeah, sure. I still produce film and now television as well. I mm. have a production company here in Los Angeles called Court 5 with um, a former new liner named Jane Fleming. Okay. And so in that we've had that company for about seven years and in that time we've made five films and a TV series um, and more to come. Wow. So I kind of want to know, like, first of all, like, how do you even get into producing? Sometimes I say I'm a producer <laughs> for some of my film projects. Can you explain maybe first what producing is and how you got into it? Sure. Producing is one of those things that's easily misunderstood because the title is often attached to a number of different people that do different things. But generally speaking, what a producer does is help assemble or enable the elements of a film or television series, which broadly speaking is the material, um, the artists, the financing for production, and the distribution. Right. That's sort of in the broadest sense what producing is. That's the most clear anyone's actually ever, because <laughs> I ask people all the time, I'm like, what, is, what does a producer actually do? I remember earlier on when I was doing my web series, I didn't really know that that was what I was doing. You were definitely Do you know doing what I mean? it, yeah. But you, you, but, you produce this podcast because essentially, yeah, this podcast has all the elements uh, that a feature film or TV series would have in that. And additionally, because you also not only are the producer, but you're also one of the artists in front of the mm. camera, as it were, in front of the microphone. Right. Right. Okay. I get it, I get it. I'm really curious about where you grew up and sort of what that was like, just to sort of create a picture of... I was thinking about it this morning, I was like, what was it like to be Little Mark <laughs> growing up? Well, at five foot six, I'm not much bigger than Little Mark <laughs> was. But um, I grew up here in Los Angeles, which um, I have to say is probably one of the most meaningful elements of my journey. And a lot of times when I meet people who aspire to produce or write or direct or act, I will often urge them to come here, not because this is the only place that you can do those things, but because perhaps this is the place where the waters are most rich with opportunity. Um, but I grew up here in Los Angeles. I grew up in Hollywood, in the Hollywood Hills, and then in Beverly Hills. I went to university here at the University of Southern California. And I honestly got into the movies entirely by accident. I was a big fan of movies as a kid. I watched heaps of them. What was your favorite? Oh gosh, well, you tend to love the films of a particular era when you were like a teenager. Like all my favorite films come from the 1970s, which are a time when I was watching lots and lots of movies. They include everything from like Apocalypse Now to The Sting to um, Jaws. A lot of the most seminal films of that 70s era period right. I tend to love. Mm -hmm. So okay. I, grew, I grew up here locally and I went to university here locally and I studied um, journalism and I was editor of my university newspaper and one of the great things about that is I was even though I was editor of my paper and I was I was an okay journalist yeah. what I really discovered is I had a a gift for the chase I liked to hunt things I was a little shameless I wasn't put off by things that other people were put off by which ended up being a really good trait to have when you're trying to get people to answer phones and open doors 
where they don't want to because like a lot of businesses um, of people I've listened to on your podcast, mm -hmm. there are gatekeepers in any business yeah. and some of your success in the early going often will be with how successfully you navigate your way into partnership um, or through those now through those gatekeepers. Right. That's a pretty crucial skill to have and to also recognize. So what do you think it is about the chase that makes you not afraid? Um, I think just from a personality perspective, I'm very open and have always been. And I never particularly felt no one ever made me certainly not my parents or any of my friends ever made me feel there was anything I couldn't do. So I had a lot there was in terms of my psychology, there was never the impression that there was anything that I wasn't able to achieve. So I had no negative view of myself in terms of things, obstacles and those sorts of things. And then when I studied journalism, because I was actually in my, on my high school newspaper as well, my college newspaper, you know, oftentimes the, the chase for the story or the thing that people didn't want to tell you about was a big key to the success. Obviously being able to write it and report it well was equally important, yeah. but chasing it down was a big part of the fun. And how does it feel when you finally got what you wanted? It becomes something, it becomes a positive experience that you want to repeat. Was it addictive at all or? I think it was positively addictive because when, it's still like anything else I think, when, when you find your way towards something that you do well um, and that you feel you can develop that skill and become even better at it, your brain tends to want to to put resources to that. So I ended up doing more and more of it. Um, I ended up falling into the movie business by accident when I wrote a short story in university that through a series of circumstances that could really only happen here in Los <laughs> Angeles. That short story, which I wrote for school, got put into development at one of the studios. Um, this would have been in the mid 80s. Um, and it's a long and crazy story, but the gist of it was when that happened, I ended up getting a job as a script reader, which is someone that reads screenplays for producers and executives and gives them summaries so that they can deal with the volume of material they're yeah. receiving. And I realized when I had that job that I, the good news is I was a better writer than I'd given myself credit for. I was a better writer than a lot of the people I was reading, but I realized I would never be as good as the really, really gifted writers who had craft and who had put in the time but I had a knack, it seemed, for identifying those writers and, and being persuasive and advocating on behalf of them. And that really was my, that was, that was job one in both right. being an executive and being a producer because material is the foundation on which all movies and TV shows rest, ultimately. Right. And that actually can be applied to anything, really. When, as you were talking about it, I was thinking, if the material or the thing that you're advocating or like trying to push mm. is what you believe to be really amazing then you can apply all of those skills and that passion into that and yeah. that's what kind of gets it over the line right yeah that's what pushes other people to sort of adopt it yeah that's interesting i can really see that now in you wanted to go back a little bit because Obviously, in, in the early days when you were uh, when you were writing at the at the newspaper, and you were achieving all these goals, and it obviously was practice and repetition, mm. and it was, you were getting better, and you're honing in on these skills, and you're obviously hyper aware of what you were doing and and who you were. 
But I also know from our prior conversations that you didn't always achieve those goals. There are a lot of sort of failures in between. Or what can you tell me? Maybe a few examples or talk about some of those failures because totally. I'm really interested in that in that side. Well, I can tell you for sure that when you've done this as long as I've done it, I can tell you factually I have had many, many more failures than successes. And in fact, one of the ways, thank God, one of the ways you succeed in Hollywood is you're judged proportionately more for your successes than your failures. Meaning, if your successes are extremely successful, then you might get a pass on some of your more stupid failures, of which I've had many. Um, I have so many, I mean, people often, people remember me for the Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. which is wonderful. But what people might not know is there are numerous films that I had in my hands or I had the opportunity to potentially be involved with that I foolishly let go for any one of a number of dumb reasons. Um, Four Weddings and a Funeral, The Crow, uh. The Blair Witch Project, um, The Usual Suspects. I mean, I could literally go on and on and on. And then to compound my failures, yeah. I then, here's a good short anecdote. The Usual Suspects, which is a film that I really wanted to see done, and a lot of people love that film. And I, I, I advocated for that film at New Line Cinema, which is the studio where I worked, and I failed to get it over the line. Right. And then when it won the, screen, the, the screenplay award for best screenplay at the Oscars and it had done great business, yeah. I foolishly went into my boss's office, who was the founder of New Line Cinema, this guy Robert Shea, who did not suffer fools. And um, I walked into his office. You should never go into Bob's office for voluntarily anyway. But I went <laughs> down there and I stood in his doorway and I sort of looked at him with this smug look like, hey, usual suspects, what do you think? And he's like, what do you mean, what do I think? I said, well, you know, I was right. He said, no, you were wrong because you took no for an answer. So that failure is yours. And then he reached into this drawer where he kept all, the, all the, the financial statements for all the films of the company, including numerous films that I, I had advocated um, successfully. He said, but let's see what you did convince me to do. Oh, look, here's the movie with Whoopi Goldberg and the talking dinosaur that we lost money on. Oh, look, here's the one about the haunted laundry press that we lost money for. So he listed three or four of these oh movies. So not only did I say no to four weddings and a funeral, which is already a huge sin, but then I said, managed to get New Line to say yes to a bunch of other films that had their creative merits, but from a business perspective were not successful. So um, I learned a valuable lesson then, which Ouch. is, um, yeah. That is harsh. Very harsh, but I was grateful because yeah. I realized then when you realize that you are actually responsible for all your wins and all your losses. It's unbelievably empowering. And I know there are people probably listening that think like, no, 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 that can't possibly be right because I, this person or, or that institution, it's not letting me, mm. I'm being told no, I'm being blocked, and of course. But ultimately, I just can't afford to think that way. So I ultimately decide that I literally have the capacity to get any yes that I want to get. And when I think that way, it's a little bit like the matrix. Suddenly you see things, insights. I'm a big transcendental meditation person. I've been doing that for two or three years. And you just see, you have insights about ways you might go around or under or over. Not every time, but I think personal, I'm a big adherent to personal responsibility. So am I. That's something that I've been more uh, 
aware of over the last few years. And I think that the times when you do get no, there must have been something in you that didn't really want it. I totally agree with you, and I clearly didn't want usual suspect badly enough. Yeah. But it is not a coincidence that the the hand, the really huge culture-busting successes that I was fortunate enough to have, Lord of the Rings, Jackie Chan in Rumble in the Bronx, mm-hmm. like Dance in the Dark, which won New Line its first Palm Door. These are things that I wanted so badly. I literally put my head down, put blinders on. I could not be dissuaded. I yeah. irritated people. I got on people's nerves. People said mean things about like that I should just shut up and go away and not talk that not talk about this or that again. And I just refused to do it. Um, I also was, because I'm a bit of a minimalist, I also had organized my life. I lived in a small apartment, literally one block from New Line. Sort of, I lived a somewhat monastic existence. And I did that because I thought if you're going to take bold swings, what you don't want to be in my own mind was leverageable, which I thought, which I took to mean you don't want someone to be able to push you back on something by being vulnerable. Like, well, if you do that, I'll make sure you can't pay your mortgage. Right. Now, again, I was very fortunate. I, I was not married. I had no children. So I could organize my life this way, but I made choices. So, and then when I did get married, I made sure, and you actually know Rachel, yes, um, I made cool. sure to, to marry someone who I knew vibrationally would not be flipped out by any of the weird ways that I behave. <laughs> Well, in that way, you're a good match. Yes, for sure. Obviously. I totally relate to that kind of thing. I don't want to ever be under someone else's kind of threats or thumb. Yeah. Basically. Especially when we're going for all these things that are quite risky. Right? I agree. If you can organize your life mm. to support your ambitions. Because I'm, I'm a big believer in like, it's more important to have an ethic than an ambition. Like, yeah. people often find it funny that I say I fell into the movie business because I really did fall into it. I wrote this story for a university course. I wasn't sitting there like my film school friends like, oh, I want this so badly. What I sort of knew, what I really knew, which under, under, which sits under all my ambitions is I knew I loved enabling artists. So I was, so there was a number of ways I could have made that happen. Yeah. Film and television ended up being the way it happened, but it didn't need to happen that way. And then as I got older, I went through therapy and a whole bunch of like stuff, I sort of realized that even below that, I basically was recreating families, which is really what I was doing. Is I was creating families that I wanted to have be awesome families. And films, companies, all these things, you know, products, services, these are all forms of families. Yeah. And that's what I really wanted on the most really elemental level. That's incredible. I just, oh, I'm a bit speechless because it's similar to me in terms of working with who I wanted to work with. It makes me feel really alive and it makes me feel like there's purpose. Yeah, purpose. I think I'm glad you said purpose. To me, I actually don't see personally sort of happiness as a goal like happiness is great yes. mm-hmm. I'd like as much of it as possible thank you very much yeah <laughs> but purpose and meaning actually are things to aspire to and if you're going to bump into happiness you're more likely to bump into it 
pursuing purpose and meaning um, in the first place. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Really knowing what the purpose is or the goal is or the thing that the journey to getting there, but all the good and bad things, because I don't know about you, but challenges and setbacks and failures always used to be something that really scared me. So I often wouldn't do things. I think I held off from doing a lot of stuff because I was scared that it wasn't going to be good enough, I was going to fail, it was going to be really embarrassing, all of these things. And I think the more that I failed in relationships, in business ideas, or you know, even not getting acting jobs or auditions and things like that, I think that has actually made me more confident in the fact that I can get I can still get through those failures and still be a success in a number of other things. Totally agree with you. I don't think anyone learns that much from winning. You definitely lose you learn a lot when you quote lose. I'm not even sure I like that word, but when you yeah. when you have a failure, yeah. you definitely learn more than when you have a success. But always. also the idea that you can also you can bounce back from that. Yeah. I often get asked the question does like after Lord of the Rings people sort of very sweetly and some not so sweetly said, oh, well, nothing will be as good ever again. Mm-hmm. So you've, you've peaked too soon. And what I tried to explain, which is still the truth, is that every endeavor, in my case, films and television, is uniquely itself. And the craft, one of the joys of craft, be it like whether you're a cobbler or like a master diamond cutter, whatever, or making the perfect cup of coffee, whatever it is, there's something inherently satisfying that it's never exactly the same, mm-hmm. but the underlying principles are. Yeah. And there is a satisfaction in executing at a high level, no matter the scale. Yeah. Did you, ev- did you though, from all of these questions at the time, did it ever go through your mind? Will anything be as, as great as this? I sort of made the determination, maybe this is just me, that it actually didn't matter. That I was so pleased between my love of the Lord of the Rings books, which came from when I was like 12 years old playing Dungeons and Dragons with my friends, to my love of Peter Jackson, which started in the mid-80s when I first saw Bad Taste, his first 16mm film, that the achievement of those combined passions on such a profound level sort of put me in bonus time. Right. That now at this point, I could just concentrate on craft and whatever I wanted because nothing could ever be taken away from me in relation to that particular accomplishment. Mm-hmm. So I actually found it hugely freeing. I did not find it like a like a yoke around my neck that I then had to sort of live up to. Live up to. Because yeah. um, I think I'm also naturally fairly content yeah. So um, I don't, I don't, I don't beat myself up on any of it. I sort of feel like I love the craft. That's a really key point: is not beating yourself up about things because that's something I struggle with sometimes, and I think a lot of people do. Mm. What is it that compels you when you read a script, and you, you know, that feeling that you had with Dance, Dancer in the Dark and um, The Lord of the Rings and Jackie Chan mm. in the Bronx. Can you pinpoint the thing that makes you just beeline for a yes all the way? Totally I can. I actually fall in love with the artist before I fall in love with the art. So 
I had a love of Jackie Chan as a fan long before I ever thought I'd have the chance to meet him. Um, Lars von Trier, I saw his very first film after he finished Danish film school in the mid 80s, and which is called Element of Crime. In fact, one of the reasons I got Dance in the Dark is because he dared me to say, you don't even know my work. I said, I know your work all the way back to university. So, because there's so much to overcome. Films and TV, but really any endeavor, are there like, you know, like when a gazelle is born, it stands up right away because it needs to be aware of predators, but it's awfully awkward and it tends to fall over easily. Those are like, yeah. films and TV are like that, any endeavors like that. So if you're going to spend the fastest I've ever converted the desire to make something into actually making it is two to three years. Like that's, that's, that's at that's, speed. That's, and that is like, you've that's, got to have yeah. stamina. That's, yeah, so I've spent much longer. So if I'm going to be committed and get told no 90% of the time, what is going to keep me from believing that no is actually the correct answer and that I'm wrong and that the gatekeeper is right? The only thing that will sustain me is if I love the artist and I'm, and therefore now I love this work of the artist, so I take it forward. So you have to put a lot of trust in the artist as well. Yeah, and hopefully you achieve a balance, which I, I often refer to as mutually beneficial self-interest, which sounds a little cold, but it's not meant that way. It's almost a spiritual concept, which is if an artist is doing something for him or herself, mm -hmm. They desperately want to make this thing. Mm -hmm. And you know you have the capacity to contribute to that happening. Mm -hmm. And then in contributing to that happening, something wonderful is going to help happen for you. Then you have a perfectly balanced agenda, which actually transcends contracts. Yeah. It, it creates a, it's a version of trust that, is, that has got stuff underneath it. It's yeah. not just like, oh, hey, let's just try this. Yeah. And it's not just about the money. Right. The, yeah. Because when, it, when it's, when it's just about the money, stuff. and I've done things that, that on the continuum, you know, I've done things that have swung the needle more to the commerce end of the spectrum, for sure. When you sit, when you work at a company like New Line or when you have your own company, you sit in a chair. My, the same guy, Bob Shea, who told me to get out of his office because of usual suspects, and he was right, used to say, that chair is an opportunity cost. The chair you're sitting in is worth something. Someone else could be sitting in that chair using its power. So whether that's your own company, right? And now you're, you've, you've put the chair down and you've sat in it, or it's the company of someone else and you're utilizing their platform yeah. to get things done. Like, are you the best person to sit in the chair? And if you are, show me. So, and if you can't show it, either in your own company or in someone else's company, then what does that mean? Maybe that means something. So it's, it's a good way to sort of test your mettle. Yeah. Have you ever been so harsh with any of your workers? <laughs> no, have I have not that? actually. Have I have not. That? I have not. Oh. You are 100% right. I'm guilty as charged. <laughs> I have not been as harsh on, on others as I have. And by the way, and I'm grateful yeah, that, I, that yeah. I was treated that harshly. So, um, so no. Um, and maybe <laughs> that's a flaw. Um, I'm not sure. It's a good question. 
I think probably if I was going to be consistent, I would find a sort of a mark way to do that. Right. Um, but I haven't What is found the it. mark way? It would probably, ugh, it's a good one. I mean, I don't want to be one of those parents, you know, like I'm not a parent, but I can yeah. imagine there's the parent version of, you know, I'm just really disappointed in you. Like, right. <laughs> like instead of just coming That's in and just, yeah, instead of just coming in and like yelling at me for yeah. like wrecking the car. Yeah. Right. Like just coming to like, I'm so disappointed. Like, I don't know. I think I might, maybe it says something about me that I just rather get yelled at. Um, do you ever, I mean, do you have that thought that if someone else didn't achieve something, are you one of those people that's like, Oh, just give it to me and I'll do it. Yes. I try to do, I try to do that less now. I mean, when you're in an entrepreneurial venture, like the one that, that my company now is where it's myself and Jane and just the two of us, um, your team is not so much employees, but there are stakeholders, you know, mm-hmm. artists that you're working with, financiers that you're working with, distributors that you're working with, mm-hmm. the rep- the agents and managers and lawyers of talent that you're trying to bring on side. Yeah. So it's a different energy dynamic when you're trying to persuade someone about what you think is the ideal course. You have to... I'm now going to contradict myself. Maybe it's better to be forced to make a more articulate case because there is something... I refer to as boss energy. Yeah. When you actually have an employee that you pay, like that is there to execute on a vision of the company that he or she is presumably signed up for because here they are. Yeah. Um, as opposed to someone on a slightly more horizontal structure mm-hmm. where you have maybe not, maybe it's like, you know, the, like there's partnerships, but maybe you're the senior partner and they're the junior partner. You're all partners, yeah. but maybe you're sort of the most among equals. Yeah. So then you actually are forced to make a case. And sometimes that can be really helpful now that I'm thinking about it. Because when I've been forced to make a case, if I can't convince myself, like I'm gonna, I have to call Celeste. I really have to try to convince her that this is the way to go. What am I gonna say? And then I come up with something like, wow, I wouldn't be convinced by that. Then obviously I can't realistically expect you to be convinced by it either. Yeah, and do you ever, like, if you couldn't convince someone would you ever give that to someone else and say, can you do something with this? Yeah. Like, is that easy for you to do? Yeah, I think if you're going to scale a company, which I think is what we all, you know, in any of these kind yeah. of entrepreneurial ventures, there's only so much you can do by yourself. You can't take the company beyond a certain threshold unless you can scale it. And in the case of the business model that I'm in, in movies and TV, the only way you can scale it is by is by empowering colleagues other people because then you can generate more content and not to be just to be bold about it Mm. more fees more opportunities and it is a rich get richer business the more you do well the more you tend to do well right that's really great advice actually um i've been thinking about how to scale as well and one of the things that i find really hard is actually like letting go of some of the things and like well, A, being able to afford to have other people help me with things. Right. But I think I also do have a tendency to take, like, want to do it, think that I can do it all myself. Yeah. Whether I can do it better or not, I right. don't think I can. Um, and I know that other people can. But sometimes I'm like, it's and it's been a real learning process over the last five years or so, even in cafes. I used to have this thing I called the book of tasks. Mm-hmm. It was basically, it's a, it's a ledger, like an old fashioned hardcover ledger where I would write down everything I'm supposed to do 
for myself or anyone else. And then I realized it was pages and pages of tasks. And I thought, if I am spread this thin, nothing of importance is going to get done. So then I thought, I actually have to cull. I have to cull. I have to first ask myself, are these even things that should be done by anyone? (laughs) And then once I got rid of them, surprisingly, that got rid of about half of them, which went to my own neurotic stuff that they were even there in the first place. That's sobering when you find, wait, half the stuff I wrote down wasn't even necessary, and I wrote it. Yeah, why would we... Why did I even do that? Now the other half is there. How much of this is really, oh, Mark's got to do that. And when I looked at it, I find generally about, it's, you know, the 80-20 rule yeah. that 80% of your success comes from 20%. Yeah. So, and I realized that it's that top 10 or 20% where the successes will come. And we're going to define success in a businessy way. Yeah. You know, revenue, mm-hmm. ability to scale. And um, so what I did is nothing else gets done on any day until that top 10 or 20% gets done. Like, Right. It's a rule now. It's like a law of gravity. Yeah. Um, because it, if you're competent, which we both are, there's something perversely comforting about ticking things off a list mm-hmm. that are low-hanging fruit. Like, like, oh, it's like balancing your checkbook. I used to get a kick out of balancing my checkbook. That is, first of all, I've just dated myself with the fact that <laughs> no one balances their checkbook anymore, including it me. a checkbook. But I used to. <laughs> yeah. And... That 30 minutes, that's a waste of time. That's like, no, that's dumb. That's, yeah. shouldn't, that shouldn't be done by me or maybe by yeah. anybody, but certainly not by me. And that is, that's also about growing up yeah. and realizing, okay, who's the adult mark or the adult's less that's going to like, you know, take yeah. care of business, yeah. you know, in, in the best sense of that word. Mm. And that includes even in artistic and creative endeavors. Mm. Something that interests me is how do you view famous people? You know, how do you not get starstruck by these artists that you right. fall in love with and then you want to work with them? How do you kind of equalize that? You know when people are faced with an opportunity and they go, <gasps> right, and then they don't know how to get over that initial like, oh my God, this mm-hmm. could happen to me. Right. This is so exciting. You have all these emotions, but actually it's a very unique skill to be able to just rationally look at it. Yeah. How do you do that? Does it even happen to you? Like no. some people don't even get starstruck. I mean, I do sometimes and I don't a lot of the time. So. I think it's interesting. Like I get excited, but I separate the fame, yeah. which isn't even in almost every case I can think of is almost never the person anyway. Mm. Whereas the artist who is the real person under the fame when you get the fame out of the way. And what you realize is a common endeavor, something that is meaningful. Like if you can contribute something positive to enable something to happen for another person, then that is the great equalizer. Right. Like to talk it in more of a businessy way, my producing partner Jane often used to talk about, talk about raising money, right? Raising money, Super challenging. People get scared. They get all their head twisted and all around about it. Yeah. One of the things that Jane told me, and I remember because she's raised more money than I have, is if money walks in the door right now, do you know what you'd like money for and can you articulate it? If you can't, 
<laughs> you should stop what you're doing right now yeah. and take a day or a week or however long it needs to be so you can actually answer that question right. succinctly because you don't want that to happen when you're not ready. So whether that, whether that comes to an artist, you know, if, you're, if, you, if, if you've really done the work, like, here's me, here's Celeste, here's our value, mm -hmm. what we contribute, and you know it inside and out, then you know when someone walks in the room, whether it's Brad Pitt mm -hmm. or, you know, or Warren Buffett, you will know without really even having to think too much how you might potentially contribute to them slash you and them. Yeah. If there is an answer, it'll come organically to mind. If there's no answer, then, then you can just have a lovely moment and you don't need to be stressed. Because what often happens, which is really painful, painful to watch, is when someone doesn't have something organic and then tries to manufacture something right. completely inorganic, mm -hmm. and then you watch the other person, be it a, a famous actor or a, an important business person, just do that smile. We all know that smile. Um, the Brits are so much better at this smile than the Americans are, and we're on audio, so we can't do it. But we all know the smile we're talking about. It's kind of like usually no teeth, yeah. usually like, mm, oh, that's bless that's yeah. lovely you know like it's you. and and you just why not just have the lovely moment instead yeah. like why did you have to queer it try and like yeah see if you could do persuade something. Or yeah. something yeah 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 and by the way to really hammer this point because i'm so convicted i have so much conviction about it if you don't do that if you play it right then a month Later or a year later, when something does have it, yeah. you could email or hopefully find your way and say, you know, we met at that wonderful thing at Celeste's house. Yeah. And it occurred to me, there's this thing, and I really am passionate about it, and it occurs to me, knowing about your interest in blah, like yeah. perhaps you'd like to na-na-na, and might have to go through a gatekeeper. Exactly. But now you're at least getting a righteous shot. Yeah. Instead of manufacturing some horrible awkwardness. That you have to like shut away forever. And, never and by the way, that awkwardness will again. then follow the relationship yeah. through the rest of it. Totally. I, I can think of times <laughs> when that's happened. And for the positive and also for yeah. the While you, when you were talking, I was just thinking about back to... I think we hit something when you mentioned creating families yeah. within your business, and it made me think, of, made me curious about who your parents are. Sure. Like, you know, what did they do? What was your relationship with them? Yeah, my my father um, was a was it worked in retail. He worked in women's sportswear, or as they say in Yiddish, the schmata game. I'm oh, Jewish. You are Jewish. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So he did that his whole life. Um, he and my mother grew up on the East Coast in Massachusetts, and they moved out here to Los Angeles in the mid-50s in an apartment not far from where I currently live in Hollywood. Right. So he went to business school. He worked, came out here because retail, the West Coast was like uh, the new frontier in retail. I'm talking about like big department stores, which don't exist anymore. Yeah. Like, you know, what, what, what is now like, say, Macy's or Bloomingdale's, that kind yeah. of a thought. But so he anyway. did that his whole life. Uh, if I'm being honest, I would say that he was not entirely happy. He was not, he was not miserable, yeah. like with that thing. But I think, I think he could have done something else and potentially been happier. My mother was just was was a was a homemaker for the bulk of her life. And then when she when when my brother and I were old enough, 
she ended up becoming one of these people that organizes other people. Like, let's say you have a garage full of junk. Yeah. And you not only want to get rid of it, but you also want to organize what's left and create systems so that you don't end up with a giant garage full yeah. of junk again. Like Maria, Marie Kondo. Correct. <laughs> she was a Marie Kondo of the 1970s. And as a summer job, I would often go with her and help empty out garages. And that very organically turned into an interior space planning business where she'd have these clients, fairly wealthy clients, who would then say, hey, I'm trying to design a kitchen or, or a closet, a dressing room really, that would feature my collection of uh, designer belts. Um, could you help me with that? And even though my mother did not draft, she didn't do any of those skills, she did the most important thing that anyone can ever do and should do, which is just say yes. Right. Just say yes, don't get in your own way. Mm-hmm. Say yes and figure it out. Like, that's critical, man. I just, yeah, that's critical. Is that something you... I say yes always. Like, yeah. I, I off, often will joke like that I, I broke my no button and just threw it out the window <laughs> like two miles ago. Um, but, and she did that. And, and now at 85, she still has clients. Um, and she does these interior designs. Like, she's doing the interior design of a yacht um, wow. for clients who, you know, like, you know, for dressing rooms and stuff. So, um, yeah, she's still doing that and she gets, she, her mind is very organized Yeah, and that's how she does it. That's incredible. So yeah. She's 85. Yeah. I can see where you get a lot of that organizing and the, the entrepreneurial, it sounds like your mom was the entrepreneurial kind of. Yes. Of she family. definitely was the entrepreneurial one. And my, my, but, and my father actually cut the article, an article out of the wall street journal about a woman, a Marie Kondo-esque woman in the 70s, but on the East Coast. And so she, he urged her to be the Marie Kondo of the West Coast. Yeah. And it actually worked. And my side hustle, which is this yeah. emergency preparedness kind of blog I do, um, is, is a hat tip to my mom because it's all about systems and designing plans for, you know, we're here in California. Yeah. So mostly around earthquakes and wildfires and being prepared and having skills and stuff and plans so that you can be ready to handle things that come. And that is so related to all of your producing work as well. You Definitely. Know, being prepared, organized, skilled. Anticipate. Anticipate. Like, there are all things that you... You basically also have to put up fires just in your general day-to-day. Yeah work right yes and you've obviously become very good at it so it's really interesting well i'm neurotic enough that i actually i'm a you you become what you're attracted to yeah i'm attracted to fires right meaning i secretly yeah want to be called at three or four in the morning and told (laughs) there's something wrong and you must come and like yes like the bat signal is deeply appealing to me (laughs) but see rather than let that sort of become this bizarre tail that wags the dog and reactive I decided to channel it into something constructive. Like, where is that skill something positive as opposed to something that will be exploited, mm-hmm. you know? And the great thing is when you're working with brilliant creative people on, on a budget and on a schedule. The great thing about movies is, and TV shows, the production, every movie and TV show is essentially a business that gets created and then shut down. Right, yeah. So it's not, it's not know, ongoing. It be, yeah, it must be. That's a difficult part, Yes, I would think it's got this weird nomadic structure 
where it just goes on and on each one. It, it makes yeah. it adventurous as well. How do you feel after something is finished though? You feel bittersweet. You're both thrilled that you've completed it, hopefully well, yeah. and then you're hungry for the next, which appeals to me completely. Yeah. Do you ever get anxiety on whether you will find that next thing? Like, do you ever get scared that you're not going to be able to be inspired by another artist? Right. Or, you know what I mean? Like, when sure. you're looking for something, you're like, okay, what's the next project? And you're like, none of these are doing it for me. Yeah. Do you ever get deflated? I, I don't get deflated, but I will say I, I have a sort of a constructive self-propaganda ministry in my head uh -huh. that tells me, I have this expression I will use, like, Never tell me that I'm spinning plates. You know that when people yeah. spin plates? Yeah. If you tell me I'm spinning plates, I'll become self-conscious and the plates will fall. Right. Don't tell me I'm spinning plates. I am very blessed with the fact that I will never ever tell myself that I'm spinning plates. So the thought okay. that you're talking about, I yeah. simply don't allow those thoughts in. If I take a step back and look, particularly from a revenue perspective, because the way independent production and film and TV works, it's a bit like the monkey bars in the, on the playground. You're always reaching for the next monkey bar. And if it's just out of your reach from a revenue perspective, yeah. then you have to bridge your way to that extra monkey bar and it's challenging. Yeah. But I just I refuse to uh, accept the possibility that the next thing isn't there. And then the double thing is once it's there, can I then convert it? to revenue by getting it financed and distributed. Mm -hmm. I mean, Jane and I spend most of our time, 50% of our time is spent seeking material. There's a sort of a, it's kind of an E equals MC squared of the entertainment business, which is that talent is attracted to material. Mm -hmm. Money is attracted to talent. Distribution is attracted to money. So basically, you start with material. Material is, the, is what you can use to attract artistic stakeholders. Yeah. Having done that, financing is then potentially in your orbit if yeah. you've attracted the right stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And right, unfortunately, in this scenario, doesn't always mean creatively right. It also means, quote, commercially right, whatever that term is defined for various people. Mm -hmm. And then if you can pull the money into orbit, distribution will follow. Now, obviously, if you're talking to a end user company like a studio, movie studio, or a, a broadcast television network, or a streamer like Amazon or Netflix, yeah. money and distribution are in one package. Right. And you don't need, to, you only have to do three steps instead of four. Are you working on, sort of working more with those sorts of Yeah, we, we do a lot of television now because you need to do both. Films are, films have always been hard to make. Mm. They're especially hard to make right now for the studios because the studios tend to want big, tentpole, branded, intellectual property movies. Yeah. Or sequels, reboots, or remakes of existing IP, which they believe, which is already in their house. Yeah. And they think will attract audiences. Um, or lower budgeted movies, like I'm friends with Jason Blum, whose who's company's Blumhouse. Okay. And they do all those amazing horror movies that go out through Universal. Uh -huh. They do the, the Purge movies and the Insidious movies. Mm -hmm. um, they did Paranormal Activity. Mm -hmm. So those films tend to be made in sort of the 3 million to 10 million range. Yeah, which is considered small. Yeah, yeah. considered small by 
commercial studio standards. So yeah, it's always challenging. I was just wondering whether you ever consider looking at independent films and, and hope that it will make it. You know, because you always yeah. hear of those small films that like it was made. Not they don't even talk about the budget. It was just like some kind of indie film, and then suddenly it becomes this huge success. Yeah. And it's always really interesting to see how those projects actually make money. Like, how does it even get out there? Because they don't even have half the marketing that those big, right. big budget movies have. We're, it's funny. Our next movie is an independent movie, just like that. We're making it in two weeks mm -hmm. in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Awesome. It's a comedy. Yeah. about lady arm wrestlers. Um, it's written by two women, directed by a woman, the, pro the producer is a woman, um, and it's, it's basically... I feel like I've heard of this. It's called actually. Golden Arm, and it's basically the story of, of two childhood friends, two women who are childhood friends, one of whom has grown up to be a professional arm wrestler, and one of whom has got a bakery, and who's, her marriage has fallen apart, her bakery is falling apart, she's insecure, and they reunite to go on this arm wrestling tournament, yeah. and and it's sort of empowering and funny. And yeah, we're gonna ma we're making it for a low budget. Yeah. We raised a hundred percent of the budget with private equity, no distribution partners. And yeah. the goal, the business model for a movie like that, is you make it, and you bring it to a film festival. If you're fortunate enough that it turns out well enough, you take it to Sundance or Toronto or South by Southwest, yeah. and you show it there and hope that. It just turned out so well that there's an auction environment and that you can license the distribution rights to the studios or the streamers, recoup your your investors' money, hopefully with a premium, Yeah. and then in success with the film goes out into distribution successfully, into then there might be yeah, into movie theaters, theaters and stuff, then it might be, uh, there might be overages, like profit participation. Right, okay. That's how, well... The Blair Witch Project most famously yeah, did that. Was... So that happens sometimes. Right. Interesting. But mm. you can only do so many independent films because they're just as much work as doing a bigger film where you're doing it with a traditional financier distributor yeah. up front. So, and you can be sure that the fees on an independent film are low, mm -hmm. low, low. Mm -hmm. As they should be because you're trying to yeah. get something done, high risk, that with the upside is about... Is, is in is in the sale, not about the fee up front while you're making it. And do you go for them if you think that the material and the content is, is the goal? Yeah, in that case, yeah. we were friends with one of the two screenwriters, mm -hmm. and we read the script. There was already the producer and the director, and we were asked to be executive producers yeah. on to help, help raise the financing, help with the casting, mm -hmm. help production and post. So we signed on to do that. So, oh, wow. um, yeah. Who are the writers? Just out of curiosity. The, her, their names are Jenna Millie. I was wondering if it was Jenna. Oh, yes. I you was, know Jenna. I know Jenna. That's I was right. just like, and Anne Marie, like, and Anne Marie Allison. Anne Marie, oh my gosh, because I was like, that sounds familiar. Yes. You haven't made it yet, though, have you? No, it starts no. shooting July 15th. Yeah. <laughs> That's so there funny. You go. I was like, I don't want to mention it just in case, but amazing. That is so cool. Yeah, so that's an example. Really but that's an independent film. Yeah. Like, you know, with a bullet. Amazing. Well, I can't wait to see that. So you've started this new blog, right? Mm. Sort of your side hustle. I don't yeah. know where you get the, the time to do that. Can you tell me what the website is or where people can go to sure. see that? Sure. Yeah. It's called Ready Is Sexy, and it's at readyissexy.com. 
And it basically started out, I've always been a bit of a hobbyist when it comes to disaster preparedness. Going back literally 20, 30 years, I used to give people as birthday gifts, earthquake bags, like here's the things you should have in case there's an earthquake. And I put these bags together. Um, and give them to people. And I have to say, back then, people would look at me weirdly. Right now, now, looking now at they like, think it's a great. Now they think it's a great gift. So I basically, it's something I'm passionate about. Yeah. So I started, and I wanted to write a blog. I didn't want to write a blog about the entertainment industry because I'm literally in that every day. Yeah. So I came up with this blog idea, and I started doing. It. I've only done like six posts so far, um, but it's basically about. And it's very personal. It's basically like, it's not so much like this is how you should do it, but basically this is what I'm doing. Yeah. And I have little, you know, like I have all kinds of adventures planned. Like basically people can follow along and watch. This is what I do. You can mimic it or you can simply be amused while I do it. Oh, well, I just experienced my first earthquake right. a couple of nights ago here in You were LA. actually quite close to it yeah. right beforehand. Well, we, well, yeah, like two hours earlier we'd passed through... Uh, Ridgecrest and Mojave. Mm. Yeah, so that was kind of weird. We actually thought it was a, a tremor, but it was a proper... It was just the end of the earthquake yeah. itself. And we'd just been talking about getting an earthquake survival kit and go over dinner and go, nah, we won't need that for a while because it was July the 4th yep. you know, when it actually happened and actually then there was another completely new earthquake. So I didn't realise that LA was sort of prone to that. So that must be a really... Uh, well, and in New Zealand as well. Yeah, New Zealand as well. The, my my wife, Rachel, is a New yeah. Zealander because I realize that yeah. you and I know that, but your listeners yeah. may not. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I grew up here in Los Angeles my whole life. In 1971, they had the big, I believe it was the Selmar earthquake where the ceiling literally was cracking open above my head and my parents were running in and wow. grabbing my brother and I out of bed. We would have been seven or eight years old. Yeah. So this is something I've grown up with yeah. my whole life. and. It actually goes. Does that do something to you, like, because that must be a, because that's such a different experience to me, having never, um, even though I lived lived in New Zealand and I was born and raised there. Sure. I've never really gone through an earthquake. I think I've slept through everyone, <laughs> embarrassingly. Yeah, snored, no, snored through everyone. No, that's that's so, that, that's going back to the sort of res, you know responsibility issues. I think mm-hmm. I found it empowering. Like, since this is the state of things, mm-hmm. one should take steps. You know, yeah. I'm a big believer in community. In the blog, I could talk about, like, I do not have, like, a bomb shelter. Like, I own a home in New Zealand with, yeah. with my wife, Rachel. We do not, like, it is not some gilded, you know, survivalist haven for us. <laughs> Mostly it's about community here for in the case of an earthquake. So you want to, like, arm yourself with, like, knowledge and tools and skills so that when things happen... You know what to do. I mean, there's a reason why they hammer that airline safety video over your head every mm-hmm. time you fly, because it's supposed to become make it second nature. Yeah. So. Do you listen every time? I do listen oh, every I time. Mean you do. Oh, I take I'm it very seriously. Okay. <laughs> I take it very seriously, but yeah, it's mostly about being empowered. Who, who wouldn't want to be empowered, as opposed to its alternatives, which yeah. is to be a victim. What is something someone can do? when they're about to embark on something that is out of their comfort zone and something that they can take with them to focus sure. and achieve. Sure. I'm a big fan of meditation as a rule. I find that just generally speaking, in whatever form you practice it, I happen to do transcendental meditation, but it doesn't have to be that. 
is a good way to to mindfulness centeredness just generally yeah like i just find that's a good thing specifically i didn't come up with this term but it, this expression but it's a good one the time to know you're ready to do something either make that call do that pitch is when you actually know it so well you're a little bored with it not that you're going to present it in a boring way meaning when your preparation is at a level where you literally are so loose you've prepared it so much that it's you're literally bored with it already and that way you because you've taken it so deeply inside and then you'll in the moment the excitement comes from making the presentation but literally you your preparation is so profound that don't don't launch into something for the sake of it like meaning pick the moment where you can be effective and do the work mm. to prepare that's kind of like i know it's kind of a kind of a big old chestnut and not particularly yeah. unique now that i'm saying it um but it's actually selfish. a really no but i think it's a really good reminder because actually as you're saying that i'm like yeah those times when like like i didn't present very well or all the times when i did right it was because i knew it yeah inside yeah but i actually didn't know that that was what i was doing or i was that prepared until you kind of just said that yeah if you know what i mean so I it's really good to, it's actually quite good to hear so if people want to get in touch with you mm. or uh, follow you, where can they do that? Is the best uh, platform Instagram or is it yeah. your blog? Uh, the truth is I'm, on, I'm, on, I'm a big social media person. Yeah. Um, so I'm easily reached on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Yeah. Um, and you can reach me through the blog as well. Um, so any, whatever is convenient for people. What's your, so, so for me, it's normally Instagram. What is your Instagram It's handle? at Mark Rodesky. Cool. That's all, that's your name. And I'm yep. going to put a lot of these things in. Yeah. And my Twitter is at Mark Rodesky. But the great thing okay. about having a name like Mark Rodesky is no one else has No, that. I know. It's very unique. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't need to worry about it. Oh, that's really cool. Oh, well, thank you. And no, thank you. And we finish our scones and coffee. Yay. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Pleasure. Oh, Thank you. My show is really cool. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you were inspired or learned something or want to find out more, head over to thegirlinthecafe.co.uk forward slash podcast, where you'll be able to link to everything here at Love What You Do podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, share, and leave a review on iTunes because it helps this podcast's ranking so that more people can learn and enjoy the contents of the show. Have an awesome week, guys, and I'll be here with a coffee in hand to have more insightful conversations with my next inspiring guest. Oh.